We're going to start tonight uh, at a, uh, in the uh, what I think is the final installment of whatever the thing was we've been in, involved in, and it, it, we're to a point where we have to wrestle a little bit with the uh, concept of eternity. Uh, so I wanted to review a little bit because I I didn't last time and. Uh, I enjoyed sitting here listening to Landon and, and Vicky last time. So uh, my penance for review is in full force today, but quick. So, Richard, here's to you. Uh, so we're going to review sort of all those things, because <laughs> that's what we looked at <laughs> over the last you know, couple, three months. Uh, new creation and image bearing. Obviously, we're not going to go into detail about any of this stuff. Uh, Jesus-centered eschatology and hope. Does that stir anything in anybody's mind that, you know, God's in the, the one that's going to be making the, the, the hope come? God who created is the God of the age to come. So the, the manifestation is character and love that we see in creation. And the purpose behind that creation, is, it hasn't changed because of the fall. It hasn't changed. He still created and declared it good. And he still showed up the day after they partook of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so it's the same God. We looked at Gehenna versus hell. We looked at hope in righteousness versus hope in justice and vengeance. That one probably deserves some more discussion, but uh, I'm not trying to read anything into that except just one of the things we looked at. And punishment versus discipline, and that's kind of a weak way to state it. Uh, there, remember, there were two kinds of punishment There was uh, uh, it, that are characterized by Greek words. There was colossus and and... Oh, gosh, what's that word? Tim something or another. One of them is a punitive kind of punishment that Paul was talking about meeting out to the church as he was heading to Damascus and various places. Colossus is uh, a punishment that throughout Greek literary history is uh, not retributive, but is restorative. It's not the same word for discipline. Discipline carries with it the context of family and love, but uh, Colossus is not used... Uh, commonly at all in uh, Greek and in Greek literature about punitive punishment, punishment that, that doesn't seek to rehabilitate or change. And then there's the beauty and the light of judgment. When I was writing that, I thought about that precious thing about the, the uh, breastplate of judgment on the heart of the high priest so that he could carry the children of Israel at his heart to represent what God was doing. And then we're into afterlife expectancy. So, Here's review number one. Who got all this stuff started? And who's in charge of it all? Who is involved in it all? Whose heart is driving it all? Uh, the God who is spirit, fire, light, love, and love created. That same God who is spirit, fire, light, love, and love both sent Jesus and came as Jesus to redeem and sent the Holy Spirit and abides as the Holy Spirit. So, Spirit, fire, light, love, and love is currently reigning on the throne of grace. Interesting that the symbol of authority, the throne, is called in the New Testament the throne of grace, where you can go to find grace to help in time of need. In Hebrews chapter 4, isn't that cool? Uh, And then, of course, spirit, fire, light, love, and love was poured out on all flesh. Same God. So Jesus' promise was uh, He's going to be in you and with you forever. 
That's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. So, the one who created is the one who orders what's coming. So as we anticipate the future, we can anticipate it carrying the same exact heart, the same exact motive, the same exact intentions. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that. Uh, for instance, somebody who's afraid of not having a good handle on what's coming probably is thinking, boy, we better get that right. We better get that right. Because if we get that wrong, there's all kinds of risk and danger and bad stuff that's there. But God showed himself quite consistently able to walk with people through the very worst of problems and the very worst of mistakes. If you remember when we were talking about judgment and we ran into that passage in Jeremiah that followed right after Jeremiah prophesied about the new covenant, but was also prophesying that this judgment going into Babylon's it's not going to be able to be wiped away. It's going to happen. But then the Lord came in, and I thought this is one of the funniest prophecies I ever heard. I wouldn't even know how to hear and receive and speak a prophecy like this. Because if you had been just prophesying, prophesying, prophesying the word of the Lord that the nation's going to go into exile, the nation's going to go into exile, you're going to be turned to this, that, and the other. And then the Lord has to break in and say, hey, that city you're talking about, Jerusalem, that's going to go into exile, I'm going to bring them back. I think it was amazing that Jeremiah was even able to hear that and write it down, quite honestly. You know, how do you, how do you change gears like that? You do so by listening to the Lord. So I thought that was pretty cool. All right. So what or who is judgment? Well, judgment is light, remember? Judgment is not uh, judicial in its fundamental form. If you remember where we got this from, was when Jesus said to Nicodemus, this is judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light uh, because their deeds were evil. doesn't mean that judgment's not real. It doesn't mean it's not severe. It doesn't mean it doesn't work its way effectively against the darkness in our light, but that's why it does, because it's light itself. And so uh, this was my little... Uh, this is probably the only... Larry McKnight personal translation scripture I've ever publicly said, but <laughs> this is judgment that my life became the light of everyone. That's out of First John. I mean, out of John chapter one, and came into the world, cast down the rulers of this world, and overcame your darkness. So you, my friends, are now free because of judgment to follow me. Judgment's not the end; it's the means. Light is the means to pull us out of the darkness that we love in the darkness that we're stuck in. So, that's, and then there was one scripture that I, I wanted to review about justice to kind of, uh, cause I know this is a really tough one, uh, because there's, there's, there's no way that I want to try to leave the impression that justice is not something desirable, but in the, in the brokenness and the, Ease with which we get our focus off what God is doing, justice can be a big temptation to vengeance or something like that. So Romans 3, 21 through 26. And we go to breakfast every morning at a restaurant here, in, or every Thursday morning at a restaurant here in town, and they have a, a part of this verse up on the door, and then they have a part of it inside, and they put the, everybody pulls that, that quote out, uh, uh Verse 23, and I think, I think we all feel at liberty to use it because it's a whole verse. It's not like you're cutting it out of context, but it totally is like you're cutting it out of context because it's just a fragment in the middle of this passage. So anyway, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the phrase that gets quoted all the time, kind of as a standalone. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. There's no possible way you can understand and draw the biblical meaning of verse 24 out if you don't include what's before it and what's after it. There just is no way. It's, it's, it's released in that context. So this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For a demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're not turning away from justice. We're embracing justice in the context of God's purpose of redemption and of righteousness. We're looking for righteousness, not just justice. And God's committed to that. So that was one of the things we looked at. And I know that's, that's still working in our lives to get settled in and try to understand how it is when we see atrocious things happening, uh, when we see people being victimized and all this kind of stuff. It's hard to know how to approach that. But just keep in mind that God sees all those things too. And that there is a reason flowing not from indifference, not from impotence, but from righteousness and a commitment and an understanding of who we are as image bearers. And, you know, uh, Jennifer, one of the things that we've learned by by the grace of God, is one reason that we're pursuing the things we're pursuing and we're going the direction we're going is because the Lord has elevated, not diminished, but he's elevated our understanding of our own worth as image bearers. It's not just enough to avoid stumbling and making it through somehow to the end. We are irredeemably (laughs) committed to being who we are created to be, to be sent as Jesus was sent and to be image bearers. And so one of the beauties when people do kind of turn a little bit and and see uh, a new light, uh, raise new questions like you did a few years ago, is that one of the things you start discovering is, oh my gosh, I'm underestimating how you see me. I'm underestimating who I am. And, you, and it doesn't stir up ego. If anything, it stirs up a ton of humility. But it also brings courage out. Because then all of a sudden, if not me, who is going to speak? If not me, who is going to pray? If not me, who is going to prophesy? You know? And uh, again, it's not too competitive. So anyway, that's, that's the, the justice element. And then uh, there are two basic frameworks for eternity. Or the afterlife. One of them is the one that I'm sure there was some motivating factors in in your discussion this week. Uh, basically, it's an eternity that is built on eternal conscious torment and double predestination. And it's heaven or hell. It's, it's, a, it's a very easy to wrap your ideas around a little bit. Uh, and it, it, there's something innate in simple, dualistic choices that we like. Uh, I've never had a hard time making a choice between two things. When I have a hard time, is where do you want to go to lunch? And we're, there's 12 restaurants. 
And so uh, this is, I think, just plays in to the kind of black and white, good and evil, dualistic thinking that we have. And so, but this is one. And the other one is this thing that I'm kind of linking back to the idea of new creation. Now I'm doing that uh, by permission given by myself. Because borrowing N.T. Wright's term about new creation, I don't know that he would create this kind of expectation, and I'll tell you why, if not today, uh, next week, because I'm going to go through some of the scriptures on how he treats eternity. And I like how he mostly does, but he's he's not as courageous when it comes to that one verse <laughs> in Matthew um, 20, whatever it is, 26, 40, 29 or whatever. Well, 49. All right, anyway, but so there's basically two frameworks. That's something we've looked at. And all I want to say is, believe it or not, you and I do have a choice on which way we want to expect. It's a choice not to turn away from the Word. It's a choice to embrace the Word, to dig into it, to look at it. It's all those things we looked at, the Gehenna uh, hell thing. Um, you know, it's, it's convenient and it's, it's simple in a way to just adopt kind of what the larger... Uh, interpretation of Scripture is, or the more common interpretation, sometimes you have to kind of work, and you have to go, well, you know what, there's a whole bunch of other people in, in church history, and currently on the face of the earth, in places like the Orthodox Church and stuff that don't think that. So I'm not alone. Uh, but then you can go back into Scripture, and we, we spend a lot of time, you know, uh, like, what do you lose if you if you inherit the wrong way? Because I know one of the, the, the things that comes up about the first option there, the heaven and hell option, is, well, what if you're wrong? Well, yeah, that would be a bummer. But what if you're wrong about the other? <laughs> but some of the things, even if you're wrong, so this is this is one of the, the reasons I want us to just keep in mind that, that we do have a choice. Because sometimes people that love us come back at us, and I'm not necessarily saying this happened in your case, but it is it does happen in our family, where you manifest fruit like crazy in your life, that you follow Jesus, you named him, everything else, but because you change your belief about that or another kind of watershed doctrine is eschatology and rapture and all that kind of stuff, they're really worried that somehow all that other stuff doesn't matter. And I just think um, we have to put up with that and we have to be gracious about it, but we don't have to submit to it. Yeah. Just a minor question. Yeah. I Is the linking of double predestination to eternal conscious torment necessary? Because I, growing up, I never you didn't think in terms the, of that. I'd never even heard of double predestination. Yeah, yeah it's, it's but it, I definitely heard of the other. Yeah, yeah. You know, is it necessary? <laughs> I mean, it is if you're a Presbyterian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is kind of the vanguard of, of that side. But that's a fair point. If I was to illustrate this, no, no, there are those that that come at it from varying degrees of opportunity and possibility. Double predestination does not. You're absolutely correct, and that's fair. That's fair. So there's no real point in overburdening the illustration on that side. Eternal. Yeah, it is. Thank you. Huh. I've only used that illustration for about five weeks. So, all right, good. Well, yes. Oh, that's true. Etc. So. <laughs> consciously, yeah. Well, I was talking from God's perspective. Yeah, he was conscious of making eternal torment. Anyway, the point is the bottom line. You do have a choice. Okay, so go ahead and think about it. Now, tonight, 
Uh, and next week, we're going to look at the concept of eternity and ages because both of those things, uh, except for the bad caption, they are designed to illustrate expectations about the afterlife. And most people say about eternity. And the word eternity, the, the, the word that is translated eternity, Ionis, is, uh, it's, it plays a very significant role in this. And we're going to, not tonight, I don't think I have time to do it. But next week, we're going to look at, at the turning point in church history about that. And uh, uh, Augustine and his position nailed down the eternal conscious torment argument for the Western church. And uh, there was a lot of discussion back and forth prior to that. And he did that on the basis of the word eternity or eternal. And that's why it's important for us to look at that because we can't really, we can't really converse even internally over these options unless we understand what we're talking about when we talk about eternity or when we read it in our English Bibles. So that's what we're going to look at. Uh, so here we go. <clears throat> word study time, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, the word olam, and it comes from alam, which means to veil or hide. Uh, olam is used 438 times in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to go to that definition quite yet, but I want to, uh, I want to talk about a couple things about it. So olam is a fairly common word in the Old Testament. Uh, I've got some scriptures, just a few. Obviously, we're not going to go through 435 of them tonight, or 38 of them, but I've got a few scriptures to touch on that'll give you a little bit of the variety that it's used for in the Old Testament. And it does all kind of go back to the idea of, of time or whatever. Uh, it is translated as eternity. But the way I wrote that with those little highlighted words, properly and generally, I don't know if you've ever looked in lexicons, uh, particularly in Strong's uh, dictionary, but their definitions will include that. And I've always had a question, and it's been one of the questions that has, um, as a non-Greek scholar, non-Hebrew scholar, it's always puzzled me when the dictionary that you're trusting in says, so the meaning of this word properly is this, but then by implication, and then it comes up with something that who knows, you know, where it goes. So this is that way a little bit. Uh, properly, it means concealed, which kind of goes back to the idea of veil or hide. But it also has to do with a vanishing point or something is being hidden in the future or it's being hidden out there at a distance. So that's it's used that way quite a bit. And then time out of mind can be past or future. So it's behind, uh, it's, it's further away in the past than you can understand it, or it's further away in the future. And then uh, it's practically, I thought this was interesting, practically it's translated eternity. Okay? And then adverbally it's translated as a modifier that says always. So always something. Okay? Now, in the, in the King James Version, it's translated ever and sometimes ever and ever 272 times. And you can see that, right? Ever or ever and ever. It's kind of where the attorney idea. Everlasting is 63 times. From old or old or old times or something like that is 22 times. The word perpetual, and mostly that's in Leviticus, where it talks about various sacrifices, that it's going to be a perpetual sacrifice or a perpetual priesthood or a perpetual. So that makes sense, right? It's something that's 
going forward on a timeline. Uh, evermore, that's one of the ones. And the blue ones are the ones that kind of lean themselves into the idea of eternity. So we have everlasting at 63, forever and ever, obviously, would do that as well. But evermore is 15 times. Never, uh, in, in some sense, the word is used in a negation in a sentence to mean never. So that would be like, it could be translated, not ever. Make sense? Okay, because it's still kind of continuing. And then, um, where am I at? Never. Okay, time, uh, either before time or past times or times past, that's done six times. Ancient, uh, same thing, ancient paths, ancient times, ancient things is done five. The world uh, is translated four times, or it's translated as world four times, and it's speaking about the system of the world usually, and, and it's one of those things that I'm going to pick a bone with in a little bit. Always or always is a combination of five times. Long, like long ago, or something like that. Uh, two times more, two times eternal. Interestingly, in the King James, it's only translated eternal one time, along in the uh, in the King James Old Testament. Continuance is one, and then it's translated as parts of various phrases that are something like this. Uh, it, there are two other words. Uh, one of them is used 43 times, one used 49, that mean like a goal, or it's a very poetic word, like a bright spot on the horizon. Uh, and then the other one, odd, means a terminus or an end. So it's talking about a point that creates a relationship to itself. Okay. Now that's really it for all those words in the Old Testament. So here's some scriptures. The first use is in Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take from also from the tree of life and eat and live Forever. The word forever is along. So you can understand how that plays into the idea of a long time or eternity or something like that. Uh, but forever is the one that's translated a whole bunch that way. All right. Here's another verse. Second Chronicles 6 2. This is Solomon at the dedication of the temple. I have built you a lofty house as before he turns and prays over all the people. I have built you a lofty house in a place for your dwelling forever. Now, what I want you to notice about this is Solomon used the word olam, and I'm sure he used it in the purpose of his own intention, that he had intended to build a house that God was going to live in forever. Did God choose to live in that house forever? No, he did not. So olam does not automatically force forever to be forever meaning that certain circumstances can intervene, perhaps, like the faithless of a nation and getting exiled to Babylon. <laughs> Judgments, things like that, right? Okay, next one. Uh, Isaiah 64.6, from days of old. Days of old is uh, translated along. From days of old, they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God beside you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for them. But that's speaking back to a specific period of time, even perhaps coming up to the present, but that doesn't qualify as eternity because the point of even Isaiah 64 is that things are going to change. The old places will be made new, all this kind of stuff. So people are going to hear God, but it's talking about a specific time leaning back towards the past. Does that make sense? So it doesn't... Yeah. Yeah, a negative sign on the back. It is, exactly. Uh, 
And then here's one in Leviticus. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. This is talking about people that are non-Israelis that you can have as slaves. The word permanent is olam. In this case, it means the life of the slave. There's no way to perpetuate it beyond one man's life or one woman's life, right? Uh, you can, but in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. So this is where in Leviticus it says you can have slaves from other nations, but you can't have slaves of your own brothers and sisters. But it's obvious that this isn't an eternal situation. Israel's that had Egyptians as slaves aren't still going to have them in the resurrection. <laughs> Right. Okay. And then here's one. So each of these represent a duration, but not necessarily an eternal one. And then this scripture is a really great one. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompasses me to the point of death. The great deep engulfs me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountain. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. So even the context of this verse, the way it is right now, without unless you know who it's about, which you probably do, but even that context, there's a contrast in there between the earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit. So that's not a permanent situation. And then, of course, verse 10 finishes with this. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. <laughs> so this is the shortest term I can find, the shortest amount of time I can find that Olam stands for in Scripture, and that was three days in the belly of the fish. So that word forever is olam. Okay? That's just uh, something that makes you go, okay, hmm. Jonah probably thought it was forever. Yeah, he probably did. Even though he was still speaking hope whenever he wrote that after the time. So anyway, that's it for the Old Testament. Uh, we'll look for a little bit more detail on a couple of those passages and the reason I wanted to start with just a brief look at the Old Testament is because the word olam really is the root for the biblical understanding of the New Testament words aeon and aeonios and adios. And we could do a lot, and I, I've looked a little bit at it. I, I'm not conversing in it to be able to persuade you with it. But these New Testament words are pretty consistent in how they're used both out in uh, other literature, in Pliny and, and Greek literature and stuff like that. So we'll look at them real quick. All of the New Testament words come from the same root, and that word root is aa, and it just means a duration of time, and it's used seven times. If you guys want to see it, I don't know if we're going to try to do it tonight. I've got all the, seven of those verses out here, and I can share what they are. But it's the root word from which the following three words come, and these three words are the only words that are translated anything close to eternity or eternal in the New Testament. So the first one of those is adios. Uh, Strong's definition 
calls it ever during. Forward and back, this is literally Strong's definition, ever during, forward and backward, or forward only. It's used two times in the New Testament, and it's translated in the King James in Romans 1.20 as eternal, and in Jude 6 as everlasting. So I want to read those two to you. And this is the one word that is consistently translated in, in other Greek literature as something very close to eternal or perpetual or something like that. So first one we're going to look at is Romans 120. So Romans 120, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The word there is eternal, and it's associated with power, and it's talking about God's power. So Paul was saying that God's eternal power, adios. Now, what modifies what in that sentence? In other words, does the word eternal modify God's power? Or does God modify his power for the sake of it being eternal? And that's the question that you got to kind of mull over. And tonight's intro to this, so we're not going to. I'm not going to try to get a huge debate going on. But if you think about probably your use of the word for the last several years, eternal, it's the modifier. It's the thing that is designed to bring clarity to something. So, in other words, in John chapter 17 when he says, and this is eternal life. We have a tendency to think that eternal has the power to define that life. But really what John says next, as he's praying to the Father, has that. This is eternal life, that they would know you, the one true God, and Jesus whom you sent. But there's a really powerful verse near the end of Matthew that almost all of the... Eternal torment consciousness. <laughs> I'll get that changed by next week. Almost all of the case for that, and that verse in Matthew, whatever it is, 45, 29 or something like that, uh, we'll look at it in detail next week. That is what Augustine built his commitment to eternal conscious torment, the, the eternal part of it, is these will go into eternal life, but the others into eternal punishment, Colossus. And Augustine's argument was that if the life of the age to come is eternal, then the punishment of the age to come is eternal because the same word is used in both. And so it's been for 1,200 years a pretty powerful argument that people just kind of embrace and move forward. Which is the modifier there? And that's that's the tough one. And we can't really get away without looking at that. Except I'm not going to look at it tonight. We're going to look at it next week. So anyway, that's kind of what's going on with uh, this word. Uh, no, that's not that, that's that's not that word. Aeon, and, and that word is adios, and we'll get to that in a second. But anyway, that's the issue. So here's Strong's defense for uh, New Testament 165, Aeon, 
And this is one of those also that does this whole uh, properly by extension and by implication. So this is literally, if you look it up, uh, what Strong's definition is. Properly, aeon is an age. And again, I ask the question, well, if that's properly what it means, why don't you give it a try to let it mean that everywhere it's used and then see? And I actually like to do that. And I'm not a Greek enough scholar to know how stupid it is or how badly it drives me off target. So I figure, well, if the proper meaning of this is an age, then I'll read a whole bunch of the scriptures that use it as that and see if it makes sense. And sometimes it maybe doesn't, but many, 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 many times it does. So for instance, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it, it's talking about Jesus, and it says, through whom he, God, in other words, God has spoken in times past in various ways to the prophets and men of old, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son. Verse 2, in whom he made the worlds. Well, that makes sense, okay, but what's the point in saying that? Uh, does it also make sense equally in whom he made the ages? I think it does, and it opens up a lot of interesting things, so we'll look at those. But So properly, it's age and age or ages. By extension, perpetuity, meaning Okay, so if we're talking ages, then that just goes on and on for a long time. So perpetuity would be that word. And perpetuity is one that's common in theological text about this, these words, these three words. Uh, also, by implication, it means the world. Now, here's where <laughs> I'm going to argue with somebody. I don't care how smart they are. Who makes the implication when the Bible plainly says that the world is going to pass away? It's going to be made new. It's going to be burned up. I mean, these are all the implications in Scripture about the world, right? So who, who, and what is the basis for the implication that a word that speaks of ages or even eternity is also speaking of the world? And so I just don't understand the translation of it, and you'll see what's, what it's about here. So uh, it's used 120 times. Ages is only used twice. In other words, the thing that is the proper meaning of the word is only used in the uh, King James translation in the New Testament two out of 120 times. That seems bizarre to me. And then, uh, course is used one time. Kind of see that. That an event takes its course. That's a time-related positioning this thing in the flow of something. Eternal is used twice. That was a little surprising that it was only used twice. Forever or forevermore or evermore is used 70 times. So that is definitely kind of a by implication type of thing or the extension of, of perpetrator. And then the beginning of or simply world is used 39 times. And honestly, if you'll, if you'll get a Bible or a, like a concordance or something, and you go to all the verses where aeon is used, and you read all the world ones, and you put age or ages in there, it makes a ton of sense. The scripture seems to really make some sense. And there are people that do that. For instance, uh, Young's Literal, and we'll look at some more detail next week when we're trying to parse out, you know, with the basis for what we're going to believe, or think about believing. Uh, Young's Literal doesn't use the word eternity 
nor he does he use the word world at all in his translation for this word. And, and one reason is because you guys know there is a word for world, right? Cosmos is, is the world word. And uh, so there's a perfectly good word for world. Why would you use a world that speaks about ages to, to supplement that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And when you read it, I, it still doesn't make any sense to me. So anyway, uh, but so the word that that uh, Young uses for aeonios and aeon is age for aeon, and aeonios, which we're going to look at in a second, is like age during. David Bentley Hart thought that didn't make any sense, age during, and it, it doesn't. But I respect Young for doing it because it lets you know what the word actually is in the Greek. But David Bentley Hart settled on something like unto the age or of the age for aeonios and age or ages for aeon. So anyway, this is a big one. This idea uh, is, is, is a big idea. Now the next one here is aeonios, and it's the one that obviously mostly the concept of eternal or everlasting and that kind of stuff comes from. So um, it is also defined as perpetual. And then there's this little modifier saying also used of past time uh, or past and future. So it's the same thing, basically. So there's an acknowledgement in Strong's that the words all come from the same root, meaning that time-related thing. It's used 71 times in the New Testament. And in the King James, it's translated 25 times as everlasting, 41 times as eternal. Uh, when It's translated world or the world began or when the world began three times. Evermore, one time, that's in Revelation 1.18, and ever, one time, in Philemon 15. The story in Philemon 15 is an interesting one, because Paul is encouraging Philemon that Onesiphorus, his slave, left him for a while so that he could come back as a brother ever. So again, it's not talking an eternal thing, except it kind of is, you know, I mean, in the sense of a perpetual from here forward kind of situation, but that's what that's about. So that's how that one got to be ever. And um, and the other one is a declaration by Jesus in the prologue. All right, so here's here's a verse that we're going to look at tonight, and then we'll, we'll, we're going to be done for tonight, except for questions. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So two of these three words are used in this verse. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. So there's two words in there that make an interesting combination for that phrase. There is the 166 aeonios is long ages and chronos is the word for time, if you remember, like a chronograph. So time and ages past are combined to position this thing, the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret. So it's not talking about eternity. It's talking about the opposite of eternity. It's talking about something that for a long time was secret and now has been revealed. You see what I'm saying? You... You can't at the same time say eternal never ends and then talk about something that's eternal that has an end. Like a hiding of a principle for a time until now. So all I'm just showing you is the variety that this is used. in this Continuing in the same verse, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the command of the eternal God. 
Now, that is matched up, Aeonios, with Theos. Now, can Aeonios emphasize the eternal nature of something, the long, unending nature? Depends on what it's there for. God determines the meaning of Aeonios in this, right? God is eternal. Okay? Does that make sense? So all I'm saying is that the word Aeonios does not innately carry the concept that we have of eternal. It, it, it speaks about periods of time or those sorts of things. And then the last one has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. And that is Aeon. So two of the three primary words that exist in the New Testament that speak of eternity are used two here and one here. And uh, the forever, the glory forever is that positive emphasis that you're putting on it, like the inverse of the negative emphasis. But the the uh, aeonios, it, see, it wouldn't make any sense to read it this way. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept a secret for eternity. Because the word has wouldn't fit in there. Right? Because it is I mean, you can't talk about eternity hasing, eternity ising, if it's that, if that's what it means, if it's the never ending, never beginning kind of thing. Okay. So this is all I'm trying to, trying to show you. Yet in the case of God, Aeonius can speak to that long thing. So I'm not saying there isn't any. That's why we're going to have to, that's why you're going to have to make a decision on what you believe once you look at it. So anyway, that's that. And that's it. So I can go back. We're very math, even though everybody says they don't like math, we use mathematical concepts. So mm -hmm. eternity is always infinite. Mm -hmm. we, we, we associate eternal and infinite and just say they're the same thing. Same like with the omnipotent, omnipresent. Right. The right. omnis are infinite. Right. And really those become a mathematical concept that doesn't necessarily apply to reality or, you know, so we, we confuse the math with grammar. It becomes, yeah, it becomes the, the tail wagging the dog sometimes. Yeah. Meaning that the thing that they're modifying or they're talking about right. has life of its own that, that has character and it has shape and it has texture and it has feeling. But once you insert some of those, like the omnis, or once you insert that in, you're right. It, right. We reduce it down to a mag, uh, just a, just a, and, and we assume it has to be the mathematical number infinity yeah. on everything. Which reminds me, it's a good thing you brought it up because if we're going to talk about this, I'm going to probably try to look into where the concept of the infinite fits in our assumption that way. Yeah. But all I'm suggesting is that this doesn't have to imply that. We also, and I'm a strong believer in the inerrancy of scripture and all that, but especially like we look in the Old Testament there's a lot of, well, the thing you read in Jonah yeah. that are clearly hyperbole, if not hysterical. Mm -hmm. And we have to say, oh, is he saying mathematically precise infinity, I'm stuck here? Or is he saying, man, I'm stuck here forever? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or or limited knowledge, like Solomon. Yeah. I, I absolutely believe Solomon intended yeah. God's presence to stay in that temple forever. But he wasn't prepared for the idolatry of the nation. He, it didn't right. even enter his mind that that was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And did it need to be repainted every so often? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Greg. 
Well, going along with the Solomon thing in Second Chronicles six uh-huh. two, um, it just kind of struck me when you read it. Uh, I'm going to read it again. I have built a house of habitation for you, and a place for thy dwelling forever. Now, there's this Bible historian from the Dutch Reformed Church I really like to listen to. His name's Ray Vanderland. Okay, really well studied. Um, he has always he encouraged me. And he changed my thinking on the day of Pentecost, Pentecostal movement, the Holy Spirit falling. He said three thousand people can't fit in an upper room. Mm-hmm. And if you read it very slowly and get rid of the chapter division, yeah. you'll find out very quickly that they were most likely in the temple on the day of Pentecost, which is where all the Jews had traveled to. Mm-hmm. They were there for that purpose. So the Holy Spirit most likely, and I do believe he did, fall on them in the temple. Sure, I wouldn't have a where, problem with that at all. That's, so if we read it again, here's Solomon's intention. And all too often, people who spoke from the Old Covenant were accidentally prophetic, mm-hmm. including Caiaphas, who was considering murdering Jesus. Right? Don't you know that one suffering for all? I mean, it's very prophetic what he said, even though his intent was probably bad. Um, I have built a house of habitation for you. Well, the place where the Holy Spirit ended up dwelling was not the physical house. It ended up being people. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. So, yeah. The forever yeah. applies to the, the new. Exactly. See, I'm not trying to diminish the value of these words. I'm not trying to diminish and I don't, I'm not trying to say, oh, we should never call anything eternal. No, that's not the point. What I'm saying is that we can't let the, the sort of simplistic across the board, oh, eternal means. We can't let that become the thing that modifies that which is alive and bigger than itself. And we're going to really have to wrestle with that when we talk about the difference, potential difference between eternal punishment and eternal life. One of those things may in fact be endowed with something that the other is not. And there may be reason to believe that. So that's that's uh, the closest thing to a cliffhanger I can <laughs> give you for next week. We are going to look at those. And if you think back, Jessica, to your, to your conversation, you know, it's no wonder to me that people haven't thought this stuff through. Honestly, why risk it in a way? You know, in, if you're in a community where everything's a settled answer, uh, why risk upsetting the apple cart on that when it, it all, all the pieces kind of fit together systematically? But if, if you ever get in a place where your heart is crying out, I believe, because the Holy Spirit's in it, crying, Abba, Father, that I think God is better than I think. I think my daddy is better than I think. I think my father is better than I think. Then you have to answer that heart cry somehow. And if there's a purpose for us, it is to provide a way for people to explore those questions without having to do so subversively or rebelliously, or angrily, or fearfully. And so, I loved your testimony, and I honor what you did and are doing. So, anyway, uh, we'll get into more details next week. 